Kuznetsov. It's onside. He'll pull up. He'll lose it. The Lightning back out. Victor Hedman waits for a trailer in Gord. He has another one in Johnson. He advances right in. He scores! Victor Hedman wins it in overtime. <laughs> What is up? It is Steve Bennett, the Sportscasters Podcast, Season 9, Episode 7. Uh, thanks for checking out last week's show. We had Jeff Perlman, a regular on the show. We kind of did our thing that Jeff and I do when he comes on. My mom was not happy that he said that uh, my mom doesn't care about my kid. <laughs> uh, also on the show is Eric Hawk, and that was something different. That was an in-studio guest. We don't have that often. And Eric is the owner of the Buffalo, what was the Buffalo Wings, and now is the Western New York Roller Hockey. And I thought he had a really interesting story to tell. I was excited to give him a chance to tell it. And I thought Eric did great, and the response on that has been great. The players mentioned were fired up to have their name mentioned. And I think it really brought up some nostalgia about the great history of the Wings, Western New York Roller Hockey. And uh, I'm proud of that, and I was glad I got to do it for Eric uh, Eric's been a good friend to me for a long time, and uh, I was glad I was able to do that for him, and I'm going to send that to him as a standalone MP3 in case he wants to post it on his website. Uh, we were even breaking out over the week some old episodes of the All Things Wings podcast that we did way back in the summer of either 2008 or 2009, somewhere in there, and uh, man, was that ahead of its time. Actually, I thought it was pretty good for how old it was and where I was in my podcasting career. Uh, this is what we got today. Two SI, no, let me rephrase that. Two Syracuse grads, one at SI, one at ESPN. And the first one, Jeff Passon, of course, the first guest ever on this show, was one of the groomsmen in the second one, Greg Bishop's wedding. Uh, so two buddies. And a really interesting thing where the Jeff Passon interview is about 40 minutes and 35 of it recorded on one day and five of it were recorded the next day. Uh, so here's what happened. So I'm recording with Jeff and the Gio Gonzalez news breaks and he's got to go because he's breaking news at ESPN now. And then as he goes, he starts working on the trout news. So by the time we get back together the next night, he's been on like Dan Patrick and he's been everywhere because he broke this trout story. And that was a wild experience. So a good show today, uh, the OG. Uh, one last thing today I want to talk about. I'm going to be on the Richard Deitch podcast. Uh, it's probably available as you're hearing this. So I'm going to give you the whole backstory, how that came about. Uh, I'll tell you about recording it. A little bit about my history with Richard. Uh, so we'll do that on one last thing. Book club update, Blake J. Harris book. We'll talk about that. And uh, two great interviews. So it's a really good show today. I'm excited about it. I want to get going. We'll have plugs at the end. Um, and I'll let you know what else we're working on. So let's take a break. Let's come back with Jeff Passon. This is a unique interview. It starts with him driving in Florida. 
We do our thing. We're having fun. And then he cuts out and has to go. And then the last five or six minutes or so uh, are the next day. Also, I think we have an appearance from Paula in that interview. So there's a little bit of everything. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Jeff Passan. Our first guest tonight was the first ever guest to appear on the Sportscasters back in 2011 when he was promoting his book, Death to the BCS. He was at Yahoo for the last several years, and he's now at ESPN, making his first appearance on the program as an ESPN employee. Warren Sportscasters, welcome to our OG original guest, Jeff Passan. What's up, Jeff? How you doing, buddy? I am most excellent. How are you? Where in the world is Jeff Passan? Like, because we have had you on walking, literally walking the streets of Chicago. We've had you on planes, trains, and automobiles, as the saying goes. Where are you today? Uh, I am driving through Alligator Alley in uh, Florida on my way to lovely Port Charlotte. Have you filled out a bracket? Are you a bracket guy? I, 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 I'm going to. I have not yet, and, and I felt bad because my 11-year-old wanted to tell me about his bracket. And I told him I haven't done any research yet, so I don't want to hear because I'm gonna because I'm gonna get all I'm gonna get all nitpicky with him. He told me that he's got Murray State going to the Elite Eight, though. I was a little I was a little dubious about that. But isn't Murray State that the is, team with the, like the number two pick on it? And they a lot of people think they could make a yeah, Davidson yeah. type I run. Mean, he's, so he's dialed yeah, in. Like, Duran, right? Isn't the guy's name Duran? Yeah, John Morant, I, Morant, I yeah. don't mind the idea that that my child uh, values talent. Like, right. I, I felt like part of me, like, okay, that's totally irrational. But the other part was like, hey, you're not a bad parent. Right. Like, good, good work getting your kid to understand that in basketball and in the NCAA tournament, uh, a, a guy can take a team far. And he said to me, when I'm like, Murray State? the elite eight he's like dad what about Kemba walker and i and i like pump my fist when he said that like, <laughs> i felt really good about that <laughs> you know i love i love hearing about your son as a sports fan i was believe it or not in my distraught angry mood uh the night of the championship football games the one other person i thought of was your son i said oh that poor kid his first AFC Championship game, that had to be crushing. Just a tough way to go down for a kid at 11 years old. So I remembered myself at 11 how much I loved the Saints back then, and they didn't really play an NFC Championship game. They didn't play an NFC Championship game until I was 26 years old. So, But, um, oh, man, I felt for him. Is he, how was he that day, and has he recovered? Because I haven't, I'll admit. Uh, not, not good that day, and... Uh... I think he's recovered. Uh, you know, it's for the Chiefs these days with uh, with uh, Kareem Hunt first and Tyreek Hill next. So trying to raise like a conscientious sports fan, uh, and, and at the same time one who desperately wants to root for his local teams to do well. It's it's not an easy balance right now. Well, at least at least they booted Hunt out, right? So they did the right thing there. And we'll see how this plays out with yep. Hill. And at the root of his fandom, anyway, has got to be Mahomes, right? I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, like I've I've said to him, and he's a he's a very uh, beyond his years 
11 year old. So I can say stuff like this. I'm like, you do not have any idea how good you have it, how lucky you are that, that a trash organization for a long time, like the Royals were go to the back to back world series and win the second time. Right. And that you have a generational quarterback who's still 23 years old and played in his first year. And you know, that barring some sort of catastrophic injury, and even if he suffers a catastrophic injury, Patrick Mahomes in all likelihood is going to be the best quarterback in the NFL for the next decade. Yeah, him and him and Baker Mayfield are going to be really fun to watch. I, th- I always think back to the game they played a few years ago on Saturday night. ABC was like, oh, yeah. I mean, you look at that box score, and I mean, the names in it, and like... It's all D.D. Westbrook and Joe Mixon and Baker Mayfield and Pat Mahomes. I mean, everyone you think would need to be good in a game was unbelievable in that game. And uh, I remember watching. Yeah, weren't, weren't, there, weren't, there, weren't there like 1,300 total yards in that game? Yeah, I believe the score was like 73 to 70. It was in the 70s, I'm pretty sure. And Mahomes had, I want to say, seven touchdown passes and one or two rushing in the loss. And, uh, Mixon had over 100 rushing over 200 rushing and over 100 receiving and i'm pretty sure westbrook had 200 receiving i mean just the numbers were just astronomical and yeah it was the arena league yeah but man it was just so as bad as it sounds like in terms of like oh that just must have been such bad quality football or whatever it was that i guess but you were also watching some really special players like do special things too you know what I mean? Like there was some players, players out there like making like unbelievable plays. I could, I remember just appreciating like the greatness of it too. So, but I'm okay, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with I'm okay with bad as long as it's entertaining. Oh, it was definitely entertaining. You know what I mean? There was like some moments where it's just like, you know, is this ever gonna end? Like, you know, when it's like one o'clock on the east and the game is. You know, it's 66-59 was the final score. So here's some of these numbers, okay? So Mahomes was 52 for 88, 734 yards passing, five TDs and an interception. <laughs> he also had 85 yards rushing and two TDs. So seven total TDs and 700 yards and a loss. Um, Mayfield was 27 to 36. For 545, seven TDs and no interceptions. Joe Mixon, <laughs> Joe Mixon had 263 yards rushing and two TDs, as well as 114 yards receiving for three TDs. So five TDs for him and about 400 yards. Okay, so so how, so how many yards of total offense? We're talking more like like 1500. Let me go to the team stats here. So. Oklahoma had 850. Oh, this is wild. They both had 854 yards of offense. All right, so there were 1,700 yards. yards. Yep. Wow. All right, well, my 1,300 was uh, comically low. Yeah, Oklahoma scored 13, 17, 21, and 15 by quarter. And Texas Tech scored 14, or 10, 14, 14, 21. To lose by seven. What a game. One of the all-time box scores. Uh, listen, you got to tell your son for me because I was fell in love with the Saints in 1987. Bobby Hebert was the quarterback. And he was a he was a good 
NFL quarterback. Not, you know, not bad, not great, good. And when he left, it got so bad that by the time Aaron Brooks took over after Jeff Blake broke his ankle, I thought we had the next coming of Joe Montana. I mean, he was that much better than what I had been watching. Aaron Brooks was that much better than what I had been watching. That it felt like we were gifted, you know, Joe Montana. So what finally in 2006 when Drew Brees came and made every dream I have ever had as a sports fan come true. You know, I had already suffered for 20 years or whatever. So you're right. He is a very blessed kid. And I hope that I think that that was just the beginning of great things to come for the Chiefs and for Mahomes and for your son. So hopefully the Saints have one more year, one more crack at it. And, uh, to go through the Minnesota miracle and whatever you want to call what happened in the Superdome this year and back-to-back playoff years, I think I said to my wife, I just need to find a new hobby. This is just, I can't take this. I think you need to move to Cleveland. Yeah, well, Cleveland, I mean, let's talk about that for a second because they're in a lot of ways in a spot where the Saints were, where – they went through all these years of misery, and now, suddenly, with Baker Mayfield on the scene and Dorsey putting a good team around him, I mean, it seems like they're in the spot where the window's just opening, and you just hope that they don't screw it up. Like that, they. I think Richard Deitch had in the Athletic today an article about how they're like the team every cable package or every partner of the league wants to feature. Like they're going to get Sunday night games, Monday night games. They're going to be on Thursday, like. They're the talk of the league right now. You fired up? Yeah. I, as, 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 as somebody who grew up in Cleveland, I, I am exceedingly cautiously optimistic. Right. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to be getting together with a uh, bunch of fellow Clevelanders for my uh, fantasy baseball draft this upcoming weekend. And uh, I, I will be very interested to see their feelings on the situation because it's listen it's a uh it's an easy thing to get caught up in the hype and the hoopla uh but a completely different one to go out and actually see them win ball games yeah i mean beckham you worry a little bit about what he does to the culture but i mean he's such good friends with landry and I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, is culture overrated? I'm not really sure. We're not in that locker room. Do we really know? Everything's so anecdotal. I don't know. I I like what they've done. I think that they've put together, you know, at least an interesting team and and certainly an exciting team. And look, I love Cleveland. I live three hours from there. I think Buffalo and Cleveland are very similar cities. I rooted very hard for my Rust Belt brothers in the NBA a few years ago when they finally got a title. I was excited for them, and, um, you know, I, I love to go to Cleveland. I love to visit. Every time the Saints are there, I'm there. Luckily, I got to see the first ever Breeze and Peyton game in Saints history because it was on opening day in Cleveland, and I'll never forget on the first bit, day for, first play from scrimmage. Uh, I don't remember who the Browns quarterback was, but I know it was Braylon Edwards who caught an 80-yard touchdown that was called back from her holding, and I saw the holding, and I saw the flag, and I was just sitting there watching everyone go crazy while Braylon Edwards run down the field knowing it was coming back. And uh, that was a fun game, fun day. I love, I love Cleveland. I hope they, I hope they do well. Jeff, last time we talked, you worked for Yahoo, and uh, you work for ESPN now. Why did you? Uh, I ma- do. Yes, I read it on the internet. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> Why was now the right time to make a move? Boy, you know what? That's a really good question that I'm not sure I've ever considered. Um, why was now the right time? You know, I don't think it had anything to do with Yahoo. Um, I think it was more of like a it's not you, it's me type situation. And uh, just the, the vast amount of resources and reach that ESPN have are really alluring and exciting as a journalist. And it's not just the digital side, it's the TV side, it's the magazine, it's the radio, it's the entire car wash of things. And uh, the, the, the excitement, I think, that comes with it. And, and look, there's also, and, and I think anybody who, who works for ESPN, uh, if you give them some sodium pentothal, would admit to this, there's also like the... Uh, the, the ego element of wanting to fulfill something that for a long time, anybody who's been involved in sports journalism has held near and dear, which is ESPN is the biggest and the best. And I, I think all of us deep down uh, who care about our work uh, want to be with the biggest and the best and, and challenge ourselves that way. And, and this is an enormous challenge. Like it's, you know, I have the best job in the world, but I, I also would be lying if I said it's not a really difficult one, too. And I, you know, I was at that point in my life now where I felt like I was prepared to do it and do it well. And I don't know if that would have been the case in the past. You know, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think if you had dropped me in there five years ago, I, I would have done fine. But uh, the, the feelings were mutual now and they felt like I was ready for it. And, uh, I'm eternally indebted to, to the people at ESPN for that, and for the trust that, uh, they're, you know, they're handing me a really important beat. Like baseball at ESPN is, is a big deal. And, uh, you know, being, being the guy who they want to go out and get news, like the, the challenge there is the, the greatest one I've had, uh, in, in a very uh, lucky career that I've had to this point. At Yahoo, I spent many a nights while you were there, let's say after the, the night the Royals won the World Series or the last Jeter game, where I knew you were at the game and I would wait up to kind of read your story. I'd want to hear, I'd want to read that gamer. You were great at it. I think there was a time where you and Wetzel were writing the best gamers in the world at, on the same website. Um is the job at ESPN, though, going to be more focused on kind of being the woge of baseball and breaking news and, you know, the passing bomb, so to speak, uh, of baseball? Because it seems just by following you this summer, it seems like – and maybe just because, hey, it's summer, free agency, that's what's happening. Um, maybe that's just why it seems that way. But it feels to me like maybe that's kind of more what you're going to focus on in ESPN as opposed to – covering games and events. Am I right, wrong, half right, half wrong? I would like to believe that those things are not mutually exclusive. Okay. And, and, that, and that, is the, that is the goal, and uh, that, is, that is what I'm going to 
desperately try to do because I love writing and because I'm fulfilled by writing and because I, I think I'm good at it. And, uh, you know, all of those elements, look, we do this because it's a craft and a trade, but there's also uh, a really important aspect that I think you got to love your job. And I, I do love that part of it. I'm also not going to lie to myself and say that I'm going to prioritize whatever I want to do above what they want from me, because that would be foolish and arrogant and unreasonable. And uh, I don't want to be any of those things. So I think it's going to be a really interesting year just in trying to trying to figure out for myself uh, what I can do, what I have the bandwidth to do. And, and what they want me to do. And, and listen, it, it's not easy balancing uh, all of the different elements that ESPN offers. You know, there, there are so many different avenues to go and tell stories that you can almost get lost in this morass of options. And I, I'm still, you know, I almost feel like somebody who's walking through the dark sometimes because I'm, I'm kind of just feeling my way around there slowly but surely to understand what my role is there. Certainly news is really important to ESPN as it should right. be. And not just, you know, not just uh, transactional news, but uh, all different types of news from around the sport. And, and the transactions are something that gets you social capital and social media capital, I think buys you, uh, it, it almost buys you an ability to go out and get those other stories as well, because whether it's people coming to you and saying, hey, I think this is a great story you should work on because uh, they feel like they, they want it out there and they want a big audience, or it opens doors that otherwise would not have been opened. Uh, the, the ESPN name has uh, a tendency to do that sort of thing. I, I got to figure out what works for them and what, what works for me and how I can do it best. And I still don't know that. Like I, you know, I've been there about three months now and I feel like it's been a really good and productive three months. And I'm extremely happy with, you know, the people are just great. And, and the reception's been fantastic by and large. Um, so I, I can't sit here and say that I would change anything from these first three months, but uh, it's not up to me, man. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm not the one who's running the show, and uh, whatever I'm told to do is exactly what I'm going to do, and hopefully do it to the best of my ability. So far, you've done a lot of tweeting and a lot of writing. Do you expect to do more and more TV as it goes on? I'll tell you what. Early in spring training, I was doing quite a bit of TV. A lot of hits, and, right? Sports Center hits, things like that. Yeah, 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 and. And, and I anticipate that that's going to continue to be the case during the season. I hope it is because uh, I need to get better on TV. And uh, that only happens through reps. I mean, I, look, I've been writing stories since I was 14 years old. Like, I started really young, and I'm comfortable doing that, and, and I enjoy doing that. And, and I don't think I'm... I don't think I'm unnatural on TV, but it's also something that I, I haven't trained myself for two decades, you know, a quarter century almost now to do. So 
the, the more I get to do it, I think the better I'm going to get at it. And, and hopefully, you know, hopefully the, the bosses have the confidence in me to, to put me on and put me in big spots because I like it. I, you know, I, I enjoy being somebody who is asked questions, whether they are about information or about goings on throughout the sport and being able to elucidate what exactly the reality is. My job is to know what's going on in baseball at all times and be able to deliver that in a coherent and uh, tidy fashion to a fan who might not have as much time to, to sit there and really look at the sport as granularly as I do or as other fans do. I, I want to be the conduit into the baseball world for the average sports fan. And that to me, ultimately, whether it is through a long form feature, whether it's through uh, an explainer, whether it's through a Q and a, or whether it's through breaking news, I feel is the mandate and the, the best use of my abilities and uh, the best way for ESPN really to leverage uh, what I've been able to build up over these 15 years or so covering baseball. When you look at all the things that ESPN does, around the sport things like well, sunday night baseball is obviously a big part of it um other baseball yep. games that they add other days of the week um i don't know for sure what the plans are for baseball tonight this year but but just say hypothetically that exists in some form um other studio shows sports center all the different things that they do how much are, are there certain things you really really want to do just as like a you know a person who wants to challenge himself a person who just wants to do you say like, man, I'd love to be a sideline reporter at Sunday night baseball, or I'd love to sit at the desk before the game with Carl Ravitch or whatever. Like, are there some things like that in your mind that you really want to, you really hope you get a chance to do in this position? I mean, all of them sound all really them. Yeah. cool. I, right. I, I, I just, you know, I want to do what I'm good at though. Like that's the, ultimately I think that, the, the best, and this doesn't go for me, and this doesn't go for, for TV people, this doesn't go for journalists, I think this goes for everybody in the world. We want to find something that we're good at and just keep trying to get better at it. And, and that's what I want to figure out. You know, my, my desire to try lots of things is more about curiosity than, than some sort of, like, deep-seated thing that I've had for a really long time. Like, I, I don't have, uh, in my head, I haven't said this is what I want to do for my career or with my professional life. And and I'm working toward that one thing. You know, it, like, if you're a play-by-play announcer, you want to call the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals or or the Masters. You know, that's, that is like the apex. I... I feel like I reached the apex of, uh, you know, of baseball writing in terms of just what I've had the chance to do a really long time ago. I mean, I was, you know, I was 24 and I was covering the World Series. Like, that was pretty damn cool. And, and not just covering the World Series, but covering the Red Sox, winning the World Series for the first time in 86 years. Right. So, it, you know, in, in terms of, like, getting to see big events, I've done that. I've done the Olympics, uh, you know. I, I've seen a lot of those things. Now it's more 
just like what what's intriguing what's challenging uh like i i love the notion of being challenged with something and the sideline reporting thing i feel like it is a big challenge because you have a you know a set amount of time uh that you have to convey a point you have to ask really good detailed questions to get answers from people who a lot of times uh don't want to give really good detailed answers uh, it, it's not just that though you know i want to i want to write in-depth magazine stories because you know that itch was scratched a while ago with the book but uh Look, I, I don't get to do that nearly as much as as I'd like to. And, uh, you know, hosting a radio show would be a lot of fun. Doing a doing a podcast would be great. I'm, I try to be really open minded with what I might do, because maybe there's something out there that I have no idea that I'll enjoy that that I absolutely fall in love with. And maybe there's something out there that I'll try and be like, you know what? not very good at this and and it was really cool trying it but oh hello yeah, we pa- have a guest yes paula has joined us that's okay she's apparently my wife told her no about something i think so she's trying to get me to give the opposite answer i think is what's going on paul would you like to say that, hi to that Josh? Is what kids... okay come here honey he was giving a good answer he kind of interrupted us say hello hi hi paula how are you good you want to tell him about 80s wrestling? Tell him about King Kong Bundy. King Kong Bundy. Who's his boss? Our guy. What guy's who's who's King Kong Bundy's boss? Bobby. Yeah, Bobby Heenan. Who else do you like? The Hart Foundation? I understand. Who's their boss? Hart. Yeah, it's Jimmy Hart. Very good. Anything I'm else? South of the South. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to report? Andy. What? Sam Savage. Oh, Randy Savage, yeah? And the lovely Miss Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> and who did uh, who did Randy Savage lose his belt to? Steamboat. Yes, yeah, Steamboat. Very good at WrestleMania three. All right, we're gonna go back and talk about baseball. Okay. okay. All right, baby. All right, I'm training her on the the wonders of '80s wrestling. She loves it. I I was gonna say that was that was pre planned, right? You just wanted to show off. That, that <laughs> no, not really. Your old daughter. I just two thought, and a half year old daughter knows eighties wrestling. I just thought. I just thought, like, what could we talk about for thirty seconds? And that came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking about. Do you think it sounds like you don't, which is good? But do you, do you think that in in fifteen years, if we have you on for the sixty seventh time on the Sportscasters? Uh, we're going to talk about back when Jeff Passan used to be a, a good writer, but he doesn't really do that. Like you, you, you don't really see yourself as a Wilbon or a Kornheiser or even like a Peter Gammons or someone who comes to ESPN and kind of just comes in, becomes like a TV guy and, and doesn't really write anymore. I I don't know, man. Like, uh, honestly, I, I would be lying if I said there's, there's not a possibility for that to happen. I think I, I look, I work, when it's all said and done, ESPN is a television company, right? Right. Like ESPN. And, and look, there, there's a big transition going on right now. And, and Jimmy Pitaro, who uh, I worked for at Yahoo and who now runs ESPN, uh, I, I trust, I have a deep trust in Jimmy's vision and, and his knowledge and, and where he thinks 
the company needs to go, uh, I, I will follow where that is. And if he thinks that I'm best utilized on TV and, and as a full-time TV person, yeah, I, like, sure, I could absolutely see that happening. Um, I, you know, part of me hopes that it doesn't because I, I so deeply enjoy uh, the process of writing and the end result of writing. Uh, but I'd be lying if I if I said other like look at Rachel Nichols like did you read Rachel Nichols back in the day I did yeah Rachel could write her yep. ass off mm-hmm. Rachel was so she was so good man and and I think the vast 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 majority of of people who watch her on the jump or on all the different uh, places that she is on ESPN now, probably don't know that and don't understand that. But I also think that her ability to convey information is the through line between what she did in print and what she now does on television. And I look, I, I think it would be really egotistical to sit there and say, no, I have to write. Um, because ultimately in the end, my job is to convey that information. And uh, another guy, uh, another person to look at, look at Dan Levitard. Dan Levitard could write his ass off. Like oh, yeah. he was a great writer. He was a great columnist. Dan Levitard's feature stories were unbelievable. Like Dan Levitard, long form was just so good. And so it, to me, it's not a lesser than if you just do TV, I, I I think there's a tendency among and I look, I've been guilty of this myself, a tendency among print journalists. uh, And and now so many of us are digital. We can, we can lump that in to look down upon TV people. And, And that's a giant generalization. And, and I think, you know, having been exposed a lot more in these last three months to what, TV production is like uh, an unfair one, and and one that I'm glad uh, I'm I'm losing the the stigma that I've had in the past because TV presents its own very unique challenges, and and it is a difficult medium to do well, and and that's something that I've I've learned very quickly and had to adjust to because uh, in some regards, I don't think I'm particularly good on TV right now. I, I have some things going for me, don't get me wrong. And, and I think uh, when I get more reps, I have a chance to be really good at it. But that's going to take a little bit of time. You know, I look at Adam Schefter, I look at Adrian Morjanowski, what those guys have done and the transitions that they've made and, and their ability to uh, get information and be really good on TV with it, I think is a gift. And uh, they're, they're excellent, excellent, excellent at what they do. And I hope that I can be, uh, every bit as good as them. Uh, I also hope I can still go and write for ESPN, the magazine and try and be, uh, as good as, as Wright Thompson and Tim Kuhn and Seth Wickersham and, uh, all the people who work there because there are some tremendously talented people on that side of it as well. And, uh, I, I love the idea of, of doing both. Uh, I, I don't know how realistic it is, but I'm damn sure going to try. And I think that the one thing we can't ignore is the upside of earning potential 
the highest is probably on the TV side. I mean, a lot more than print. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, we all sell out at some point. Right, man. yeah. Hey, we got families, right? We got families. And, and college, your son's 11. He'll be 18 soon enough, right? And uh, you don't want to have to pay. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and here's the you know what? Here's here's the thing. I I say, I say that like tongue firmly planted in cheek. Yeah, we're having fun there. Yeah. I don't feel. I I don't. Well, I just don't feel like I'm any less of a journalist working for ESPN or doing TV now than I was when I was with Yahoo. I like I I approach things the same way. Uh, you know, ultimately, I feel like facts are are the, the linchpin and the lifeblood of what we do. And my job is to go and gather them. And, uh, you know, the, the mandate's a little bit different in terms of, uh, you know, being on the news or, or having to be on the news at all times. Uh, that does potentially limit my opinion writing ability. And, uh, there, there are going to be some things where I can come out with a, you know, a fire emoji column on, but uh, it, it's going to be a little bit different, I think. And, it, and it's not that it's not that there are any restrictions that are placed on me. It's more that I'm almost placing the restrictions on myself because I never want, I never want my ability to get news which is the primary job to be hindered by the idea that I have unfairly placed my opinion in the middle of a story. Right. And, and there's a, there's a very delicate balance that has to take place there that I'm still figuring out. And, and that, you know, over a year or two's time, I think I'll have a better sense of just, just how to balance it. The sports guests are here with Jeff Passan the first ever guest on this show way back in 2011. Uh, let's talk about baseball for a few minutes before I let you go, because we always do this where we do 45 minutes and spend zero minutes on baseball. Uh, I, I have to ask you this because we saw how free agencies played out, right? Two young superstars, admittedly looking for a lot of money, but struggling to find teams willing to pay it. Ultimately, they both got paid and they both got great contracts. But then you look at maybe a level below, you know, Kimbrell doesn't even have a team yet, right? And Keiko struggled. And what do we learn about the sport through free agency this year? Did we learn we're definitely headed for a strike? Uh, Did we learn maybe that the owners have, for the first time in their history, developed some kind of restraint or... I have no idea. What conclusion did you take from the summer or from the the fall or the winter, um, and uh, the way free agency played out? That's the second time now you've said summer when you meant winter. Yeah, I'm an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I just I just felt like I I feel I feel like once every time I'm on, I have to point out uh, that that this is this is such a like wonderful Wayne's World production. I love it, Uh, and, and that's. And that's 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 why that's why I I keep coming back here, man. Rob Lowe better I, not I try to screw it up on us. Rob Lowe better not be out. <laughs> uh, you know that's a that's a tough thing to at this point so close to free agency and and like you said with Keiko and Kimbrel, it's it's still really going on. 
to say to take away like really big things from it. I, I will say this though, uh, from the, from the beginning, I said Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are going to get three hundred million dollars because I believed in the the power of age, and I think it only reinforced to to the, the baseball viewing community at the, the tack that teams are taking these days, which is that age matters as much as anything because of their reliance on quantitative analysis. And what quantitative analysis does in their 20s still, when they hit free agency, have a few good years left in their prime, whereas players in their 30s are far likelier uh, to falter, to stumble, to not live up to whatever contracts they get. You saw it with Patrick Corbin, $140 million over six years, 29 years old. You saw it with Nathan Uvalde, $68 million over four years, 29 years old. I mean, the four highest, the four biggest deals this offseason all went to guys who were in their 20s. And, and that, that did not surprise me in the least. And so I, I'm not going to say, you know, two and a half years at this point out from the expiration of the collective bargaining agreement that we are headed toward a strike. I, you know, I, I just I have a very difficult time believing that so little will happen between now and then. That, that it's just, it's guaranteeing us a work stoppage. That being said, even with the, the small agreement uh, that was struck between Major League Baseball and the Players Association, uh, that, is, you know, is going to put the three battle rule into place and, uh, you know, is going to put a million dollars for the home run derby winner and, uh, other, you know, expand rosters in 2020, even with all those things, um, I still don't know that the relationship between MLB and the Players Association is great. And and look, they need to mend that. And, and that means compromise. That means the players meeting the owner's in the middle, that means the owners meeting the players in the middle. And I think there's room for compromise. I think there are plenty of places where they can come together and say, hey, this is a $10 billion industry. Let's not screw it up. And, and if, they, if they can get to that point, and, and I'd like to believe that they could, then I think we could see some really drastic changes in the way that baseball economics work. Because if, if the owners... And, and front office people at this point are as intransigent as they seem on the age factor, then, then the clear thing that you have to do if you're the players is recognize this, accept it, and uh, get as much money as humanly possible to players early on. Maybe that means uh, a free agent period that starts earlier. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, and, that's and what I was what? thinking. But listening to you, I'm thinking if I'm, the, if I'm the Players Association, I need to get to free agency quicker. Yeah, it's a hard sell on small market owners, though. Right. And and look, ultimately, what what do they have? So breaking down the fourth wall a little bit, as Jeff was answering that question, he cut out, as you heard. And as he cut out, the Gio Gonzalez news broke. 
And then there was another little story in the works. And because of those two things, it is now 24 hours later. And Jeff is back on the line with me after a crazy day. Welcome back, Jeff. Yeah, it has been a crazy day. I believe this is the 14th media appearance I've had today between TV and radio. So that sort of shows you uh, what we were talking about earlier. Like, uh, it, it, is, it is a grind, but it's a really fun grind on a day like this. I'm going to ask you one question, then we're going to start wrapping up because you've had a long day. But the question is, does what happened today with Trout, the $430 million deal, if you would have known that yesterday when I asked you the question about what we learned from free agency this year, would it have changed your answer in any way? Did we learn anything new, I guess, is the question, based on what happened with Trout today? You know, something crystallized in my mind today, just when I was trying to assess, okay, you know, what what is a common thread among Trout, Harper, Machado, and Arenado? And that common thread has nothing to do with the mid-tier or, or lower-to-mid-tier guys who in the past, you know, the mid-tier guys would have gotten a multi-year deal. Now maybe they're getting a one-year deal. The, the low-to-mid guys would have gotten a one-year deal. Now they're getting minor league deals. Uh, it's more that when you are an elite player in baseball, and I mean elite of the elite, creme de la creme, uh, your floor is $250 million now. And we look at max contracts in the NBA, and, you know, there's Anthony Davis is going to get five years and $240 million. That's a crazy number. Uh, we look at the NFL, where I think the biggest number in guaranteed money ever is $84 million, which is, uh, seems criminal to me, considering what NFL players put their bodies through. Right. Uh, but if you're a Major League Baseball player and you're a star, you're going to be a quarter billionaire. And that goes for Mookie Betts, and that goes for Francisco Lindor. And that goes for Aaron Judge, and that goes for Chris Bryant, so long as they wait long enough uh, to cash in. And, and look, when some of these guys go out and sign uh, extensions early on, uh, they, they eliminate themselves from getting that type of money unless they are a player like Mike Trout, who is so transcendent that, that the Angels felt like they absolutely had to lock him up to this 12-year, $430 million deal. Does the deal that he got kind of indicate that he probably would have gotten $500 million on the open market? Good question. I think it depends on what his walk year, and I guess uh, to, to a point, what this year looked like. And, and look, it's easy to say, yeah, he would have gotten $500 million, but uh, it also would have been easy to say that a couple of years ago, you know, after the 2015 season for Bryce Harper. Right. Uh, Bryce Harper then went out and had a walk year where he had 1.6 wins above replacement. Uh, he still got $330 million, but uh, a tough walk year, especially at Mike Trout, who was going to be 29 years old, uh, it gives you pause. So I think that this deal... Uh, was a reasonable one. I think the Angels, frankly, did pretty well with it. But uh, I, I can't ever look at a guy getting 430 guaranteed and say that he did not do nicely for himself. Well, I'm going to cut it there. Uh, there's more I could ask, but you've had a long day, and I want to be respectful of that. I'm not going to bug you like your buddy uh, Bishop wanted me to about your co- your college nickname. Uh, we'll do that next time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think what I'm going to do is instead of waiting till around All Star Break time to reach out, 
I'll reach out in like Mayish, and we'll find some time to talk. Uh, since we cut this one a little quick, and, and maybe we can check in on what's been going on in the season. Uh, but thank you so much for kind of capping this off after a long day. Uh, thanks for your time yesterday, and uh, you know, enjoy that. Enjoy enjoy all the fun stuff you get to do now on ESPN. I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to the season to start to watch you on all the various uh, platforms. All right, buddy. Thanks for having me. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high All right, I want to thank Jeff Passan for being on the podcast today. That was fun. I think that's the first two-day interview. Uh, book club update before we get to Greg Bishop. It's going to be quick because I haven't had time this week to do much reading, but I have to say that Blake J. Harris is the author of our book club book of the month, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Sought Virtual Reality. Of course, Blake was the author of the book club book of the month and book of the year console wars. Uh, and Blake became a friend of this show. He was on during the original run of the book. He was on during the, uh, paperback and he's been on since we talk on email a lot and i'm proud of him proud of this book it's awesome i'm about only like 30 pages in i'm going to be honest i just haven't had a lot of time to read this week uh, but hopefully this coming week i will read more and by next book club update i can get in some details uh, but again the book is the history of the future by blake j harris the author of console wars oculus facebook and the revolution that swept virtual reality it's available now wherever books are sold all right, with that said, let's cue the Syracuse fight song again. That's going to screw me up. Hopefully it doesn't screw you up. This is a different interview. Uh, we'll take a break. We're going to be right back with Greg Bishop. All right, our next guest is in Seattle, Washington. And he's making his second appearance on the show today after he jinxed Drew Brees and the Saints. I am going to be the bigger man and let him back. He is an SU grad, a good dude, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Greg Bishop. What's up, Greg? Welcome back, buddy. Oh, thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. It's okay. I don't hold grudges, even though I side jinx Drew Brees. I don't hold any grudges. <laughs> that one worked out pretty much in real time. It usually doesn't happen that quickly. I'll never get over that, I don't think. Someone asked me the other day, like, you stopped thinking about it yet? And I haven't. <laughs> so I don't... Well, hopefully, hopefully we write about the Saints' biggest rival next year to get you some payback there. By this time last year, I think I had stopped thinking about the was it Minnesota or Minneapolis miracle, whatever they call it. I think I'd stopped thinking about that by now. But this one is much harder to shake. So I blame SI. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wrote a pretty pretty heavy piece uh, cover story about the humble Broncos. I wanted to reach out to you about it. Um, my brother played junior hockey for two years in the USHL. And I don't know, I guess the first thing I want to ask you is what did you, did you know about junior hockey before you started writing this story and the culture of it and 
the billets and the bus rides and why people play it? Like, were you real familiar with it or no? I'm not uh, sure. You know, at first I wasn't, but I'd have to sort of draw a distinction there. Like, I covered the initial crash, and it was something that was unexpected. You know, I'm sitting in my house one day. This is last April. Uh, the crash happened on the 6th. I believe this was like April 8th. And the guy that runs Sports Illustrated called me and said they wanted me to go to this place called Humboldt, Saskatchewan, and they wanted me to leave that day and go straight there. And I, I, I flew through Vancouver to uh, Saskatoon, which is about a, the closest big city to Humboldt. And at that point in time, I knew very little about junior hockey. Uh, I was sort of aware of the concept of billet families, but I didn't know that that's what they called it. And I had, I, I very much didn't know anything about the team or whatever. And, you know, I filed a magazine piece in roughly 72 hours that was about the crash itself. And it focused on the coach who died. I was able to spend some time with his sister and his parents. Okay. I remember and, that. Piece, uh, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. At that point in time, I thought, you know, I want to come back to this in some way. And we tried a couple of different things. And it ultimately ended up being Logan's story, which I think was the most interesting thing to follow up with. But um, I came to learn a lot more about junior hockey over the course of that process, for sure. Well, I was going to ask you, and I don't know if you tipped your hat a little bit, but I have to imagine in a in a, in a tragedy like this with as many, um, I guess, victims, I guess is the word, I don't, and I can't think of a better one, uh, a tragedy as widespread as this, there has to be a lot of potential stories to tell. How did you settle on Logan's story? It's pretty interesting, actually, and I feel kind of lucky that this is the one we ended up with because it was not the first one we thought of, and I think it's the best story in terms of the aftermath and the full year after the crash. But, you know, the one thing I was considering pretty heavily that I wanted to do was the first responders, you know, just because I had been to the crash right. site and I understood that this place is tiny, right? Like, it, it, like the, the, this is like teachers and medics and people that have normal regular jobs who are coming upon the scene and it's just a bus that's overturned and a truck that's overturned and all this peat moss everywhere and you know essentially seeing like you know a mass casualty scene and so you know we tried to like sort of work out something where we would follow the first responders sort of the untold part of the story um we weren't able to work that out so then i considered uh, doing the billet families because I think it's interesting the ones that had a kid who maybe died in the crash and then who decided to have another kid again it was sort of the bridge between the team that was and the team that is uh, I ended up talking to one one of them in particular and he declined to do it and so you know along the way we sort of stumbled upon the Logan effect which seems silly in hindsight because you know it was such a big deal in Canada and you know, we reached out to the Boulay family, and they said they were only doing one other thing with uh, with the Canadian Broadcasting Network. And, you know, at that point in time, it became clear that it was best to sort of focus on one kid, tell the story through his eyes, the crash through his eyes, his life, and the impact that came out of it. And what really struck me the whole time there was, you know, that this, this terrible thing had happened, and there weren't many positives that had come out of it. And that this was like the biggest, you know, most positive thing that had happened. And I wanted to really explore that, you know, this idea that you could have something great come out of something so terrible. And how does the family, you know, look at it because they aren't going to be able to reconcile it. And how do they sort of move forward knowing that this great thing came out of the fact that they had to lose their son? Did you get the impression it sounded like that 
a lot of people either weren't doing anything or maybe were like, okay, I'll do this one thing to get a story out, but then I'm kind of done. Is that kind of how the attitude was in general? doesn't really seem like... Yeah, you know... seems difficult, maybe. Yeah, I would access. say that I, would, I wouldn't be surprised... I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few things coming out pretty soon as it gets a little bit closer to the crash, you know, now that we're three weeks away or whatever, right. the one-year anniversary. Um, but that said, I I did not see a lot in the aftermath. You're right. I saw some stuff in Canada. Um, there's a podcast that Gotham Chopra does. He did that Brady documentary a couple of years ago uh, where he had a producer go up there, but it was pretty standard stuff, you know, catching up with people in the town, all the different people that had resigned from the team. Uh, you know, so, some stuff like that, how it wasn't a neat and tidy, happy ending. Uh, I have not seen a lot of stuff. You know, I, I kind of have expecting one of the last uh, survivors just got out of the hospital a week ago. Like that to me is a story I think we'll see at some point. And I was a little bit surprised to your point that we hadn't seen something on the team because they were, you know, essentially put together in a month, you know, 23 new players. And they've been pretty good this year. At various points, they've been in first place in their division. Yeah, they made the so, playoffs. I heard, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so like I think if something's going to come out, it'll it'll be like as the crash gets closer, the one year anniversary. But you know, maybe I think part of it is just people may have encountered the same thing we did, which was you know very understandably and fairly a lot of people who just didn't want to tell their story, you know. And I I think it took some courage for the Boulets, not only to focus their efforts on organ donation and what they can do in the future, but also just to tell their son's story over and over again because of the impact they think that it can make. Yeah, the kind of the lead of the story is about how was it like a family friend who had gotten the um the brain hemorrhage or whatever and because of that Logan had decided that he wanted to be a organ donor and he, he mentioned it to his dad and his dad said something like, Well that's good, but they're not gonna want your your organs when you're eighty. I don't know, it's kind of like a sad little anecdote to kinda of kick it off, I thought. When you know, when his dad said that kind yeah. Of, yeah, it hit yeah. me. Yeah. Um one of the things I wanted to explore in the story was sort of this, the idea of just how random life can be and how, you know, essentially what happened in Logan's death is his decision to uh, donate his organs went viral. And the story in large part is about how that happened. And the first dot that connects there is he had this trainer that made him the best hockey player he could be that took him through all these crazy kind of workouts, whether it was running down BMX ramps or he would hit wiffle balls at those guys and have them dodge them. And, you know, that trainer died tragically at 58 of a cerebral hemorrhage in his brain. And just before he had died, he had told his wife that he wanted to be an organ donor. And because they had had a conversation, that led to his organs being donated. And because his wife told Logan about that conversation, that led Logan to become a donor and led him to have a conversation with someone the same way that the Suggets had had a conversation, the trainer and his wife, and because of that conversation, his parents became aware that he wanted to become a donor, and because of that, they were able to donate his organs in his death. And so when you look at all those dots that connect, it's pretty crazy, and it seems, you know, incredibly random, or, you know, I think the family looks at it more like is a little bit faithful, a little bit, you know, meant to be in, in a way where they, you know, will still never get over his death. Yeah, I see the quote here is they're not going to want your organs when you're 80 years old, but go ahead. Um, yeah, so Logan's having a conversation with his father in the hot tub, and he tells him about the trainer deciding to donate his organs and said he's going to be one. And the dad, his father's initial reaction, Toby Boulay, is essentially, okay, good for you, but they're not going to need them, you know? Right.
Uh, did you go to a, a Broncos game this year? Did you see the new team? No, we no. did not. So we were up there in September, which is okay. about when the players start reporting. Yeah, so I remember this specifically because I celebrated my birthday in beautiful Humboldt. There <laughs> are maybe four restaurants in the whole town. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, we essentially met with the assistant general manager who had just resigned, this guy Jason Neville, who had basically rebuilt the team. And I met again with the parents of the coach who had died. And then we took a lot of, because we did a documentary that accompanied the piece, and we, right. we did a lot of shooting there. And we went to the, the practices of the Billet family kids who had taken Logan in, and we saw them sort of assembling the Broncos team. But uh, both of my trips to Humboldt, I have actually not been to a game there. Did uh, did working on the, the, the documentary, the little video, had you done that with a piece yet first SI plus or is that the first one you uh yeah a few times okay. uh, we did one with Tyler Holinsky when we did a, a story on uh on uh the quarterback of Washington State who had committed suicide uh I did one a couple years ago with Ricky Williams where we went to a marijuana conference in Spain and uh we did a story and a doc on his life you know sort of immersing into that world uh, I've done stuff with far before and a couple others but it's it's uh essentially it's pretty rare and it's nice when video wants to come along because you know you get a sort of a different piece told through a different medium and uh you know i'm always sort of honored when they pick it i work closely with one of the one producer in particular her name's mary ogdon and she did a incredible job on the logan documentary it's 42 minutes long i hope she wins an emmy for it and uh you know, I've been doing it a lot more myself uh, just because, you know, who knows how long people read magazine stories for. So uh, trying to learn a lot of different forms. But I, w- I was happy when they decided to come. And Mary actually did uh, quite a bit of the legwork in terms of setting up interviews as well. I was a little disappointed it wasn't embedded in the in the um, the the tablet version of the magazine. I know that SI Plus is a new thing that they're trying to drive subscriptions and things like that but i think getting people to sign up for the magazine on tablets is a big way uh to capitalize the future too so i know that's way above your pay grade where it goes and where it doesn't um so i'm not expecting you to answer to that but um when you when you've made (laughs) i would just say that that a lot of people at my place agree with you and i'll leave it at that (laughs) right yeah it's like yeah yeah um have you done them in the past pre were some of the ones you did in the past pre uh, SI Plus? And yeah, that, yeah, so, and those know, probably had a bigger we reach, had SI right? TV, yeah, or SI TV. And the that's right, it's ESPN Amazon. Plus. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure the numbers were higher, but they yeah. don't actually share them. They don't share them. So yeah, that's not. They they do not share any numbers, sort of internally. It's something I've asked for, but have not got in well, previous experiences. Well, that's a topic for if I have uh, worth I'm back on or Chris Stone or something <laughs> like that. So I, well, we can move on. <laughs> yeah, I know that's sure. that's above your pay grade. Um, man, uh, just so devastating. Like I told you in the beginning, you know, uh, my brother plays ju- played junior hockey before he went to play on to play at Yale. He was actually a real athlete at Yale, not like a like the scandal. <laughs> uh, but um, but uh. A long time ago, the Saber the Sabers were coached for a long time by a guy named Lindy Ruff, and he actually lost a brother um, in a similar situation where a bus had crashed with his his junior hockey team. This happened like in the early '80s or maybe even the late '70s. And I think it was kind of the last big 
bust tragedy like this in Canadian junior hockey before Humboldt. Um, so I kind of had had this kind of like nightmare situation on my mind when my brother went to junior hockey. I mean, it's not really something you think about. It's like kind of like one of those, like, I guess when you, your 18 year old brother goes off to South Dakota, which is where he went, you know, I never even been to South Dakota at that point or even thought about it. Like, uh, right. you know, you think of like, oh man, like, I hope he's okay out there. And the billet, I guess what I'm getting to is like the billet family is important because I remember, when I finally went, I went to the first weekend of his games, his first games, his first home games, and just like walking in the Billet family's house and meeting the Billet family, and knowing he was going to be okay with them was like such a, like such a changer for my life. Like I was like, okay, Anthony's okay with these people. He's got great people taking care of him. What did you learn like about the culture of Billet families and like how close the players and the Billets can sometimes get and. Like, give people a perspective just how devastating this is for the Billet family as well as Logan's, you know, biological family. Yeah, 100%. You know, it was really interesting to sort of see the culture in Humboldt. This is a small town of 6,000 people. There are a couple stoplights. It's in the middle of nowhere, basically the center of Canada, the center of Saskatchewan. And all the uh, people that work around the team, the, the people that take the tickets, the people that fundraise, the people that do everything except coach or play are all volunteers. And that extends even to these billet families who get a small stipend to cover expenses, but it never covers everything. And so basically they have these kids for, you know, up to six months a year. Uh, Logan would live with this great family, the Paulsons. They got two young boys and then there's a mom and dad and they operate a dairy queen in Humboldt. And you know, basically, these kids that play hockey become part of their families. You know, they help with chores. Uh, they live at the house. They follow the house rules. You know, Logan had a curfew. Uh, he had certain things he had to do around the house. Uh, he helped the boys with, uh, you know, their hockey. He became a, sort of a mentor to them. Uh, one boy in particular, the oldest, McLaren, is he's, he's a great kid. And, like, Logan talked to him after McLaren had been cut from a team you know, about his own experience being cut and traded. And you just look at sort of all these, and it's just a confluence of factors to the point where I think his death shook the Paulsons as much as it shook his own parents. And that's because of the way the billet system works. And it's because of how important, you know, those families become to these kids. And, you know, when we spend time at their house, their youngest son, AJ, still couldn't talk about, you know, Logan and Logan dying. And, you know, that was totally understandable. And to see the impact he had on their lives, you know, McLaren says he wants to be an organ donor. Uh, both the parents have signed up and they're still, you know, working through their grief. And we found a lot of that up in Humboldt too. The uh, family that took my brother in his first year in Sioux Falls, uh, they had had, they had been billets for a long time. And um, when I got to the house, I noticed a picture of the one player and they were telling me about him his name was Andrew Carroll and they were saying you know he was here I think he was two players before Anthony and you know they had been able to he went to Minnesota Duluth and they were his guests at the Frozen Four when they won the national championship and it was their first player to win a national championship and then a couple years ago he passed away at the Chicago airport Um, I don't know kind of I think they did determine it was a suicide. I think he was only like 32 years old. It was really sad. And I remember reaching out to them and sending them an email and just sending my condolences. And they, you know, they didn't get back to me for like a month. They were just, you know, they were just, they were just kind of like 
is like one of their sons died. And I don't think people who aren't familiar with junior hockey totally understand the kind of relationship between that forms between billets and families. Yeah, and that, that's the other key distinction I'd make here. Like, I think when people think junior hockey because it's Canada, they think this is really big time, and it's not. You know, that league is like basically where you go after you play youth level in in uh, in Canada, and most of the players in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League are hoping to get college scholarships in the United States. Right, and it's minor junior hockey. Very, the very yeah, the very best will. And then, you know, the really top guys will go to the higher level of junior hockey. But most of these kids are going to go to college. They're going to, you know, become what like what Logan wanted to become a teacher. And so, you know, these families are so important because this is not big budget. This is not, you know, these guys have to take buses to games. They have to, you know, they have to have people volunteer at the arena. They have to do these fundraisers just to keep the team above board and playing. And I think that just strengthens the bonds between the player and the families, the player and the town. I mean, they're kind of all in it together. It's, it's less of a business and more, you know, what you think of when you really think of, you know, community, youth, uh, high-level sports, you know. Yeah, the basic structure, even here in the United States, is that when you finish Bantam hockey, you kind of have to make a decision as a player. Do you want to go to major junior hockey and not be eligible to play college, or do you want to play either continuing on to midget hockey or to minor junior hockey, uh, and take the college path. So the OHL, the WHL, and the Quebec League would be major, major junior hockey. And then all these leagues like the Saskatchewan League, uh, British Columbia has one called the BCHL, uh, Ontario has one that's called the Ontario Provincial Junior Hockey League. Uh, and then in the United States, the Tier 1 League is USHL, and then there's a Tier 2 League called the NAHL. And... Um, you know, again, if you're going to go to the college route to that level, that's where you would play at Humboldt or in the Saskatchewan League. And the Saskatchewan League is probably, if you rank them, it certainly wouldn't be the top league. I think probably the British Columbia League would be the top league, uh, the BCHL. So it's somewhere below the BCHL. Um, geez, just such a yeah. such a sad thing. Well, I, I was saying, if, if for a kid like for a kid like Logan, like he didn't have a choice. This was the last level of hockey he could probably play. Yeah, and even if, then he was like sort of hanging on. Yeah, yeah, because an eighteen or nineteen year old by then, I mean the OHL or the, he would be a Western hockey, obviously Western hockey. The WHL by then, they're looking for commitments from kids at fourteen, fifteen. So that that path is open. That that door is open and closed by the time you're sixteen. So if you haven't walked through the OHL path by then, the major junior path, I keep saying OHL because that's what players here would play. Uh, yeah, that's over with. So yeah, exactly. This was his. You know, at, and by 19, he's getting close to aging out, you know. So it's, I don't know if that was his last year eligible or maybe he would have had one more year eligible, depending on when his birthday was. No, this was. was his final that year. That was his final year. Okay. Yeah, and because and because of the guy that had trained him, he was playing the best hockey he'd ever played. And his hope was maybe he could play for his hometown team in college, you okay. know, the next year. And even that seemed like an outside kind of shot. And yet he scored two goals in the final playoff series of his life, which for a penalty eating defenseman, you know, was pretty solid. And so all this work had like, this is also what's tragic about his story. All this work had sort of led into this moment when he really wanted to sort of leave his legacy and cement the end of his junior hockey career. And literally when he was playing the best hockey of his life is when the bus crashed and he died. You've now done obviously the, the initial story and this story, 
do you think there's more there? Do you want to do more with Humboldt? Are you going to follow their progress in the playoffs? If they were to win the league, is that a story? Like, where do you stand with uh, the work that you've done in Saskatchewan? Do you feel like it's done, or do you? Is there something else maybe hanging out there? That's a good question. You know, I, I think that there's something to do there eventually. I just don't know how far away it would be. You know, if they won the title this year, I would consider going back maybe. Um, and then I think it's just in the future, like, you know, I guess it depends sort of what happens with the team and the town. You know, I think initially there was a lot of tension over how to divide the GoFundMe money, which, had, you know, brought in over $15 million. Uh, you saw, I think, a lot of the... Um, a lot of the people that worked for the team resigned. You know, the guy that we spoke to, he was supposed to be on the bus, uh, but his dad had come in and he didn't go with the team to the playoff game. Ah, the guilt, you know, so sure. He had a lot of guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he ended up resigning. But I feel like they've come out of that and sort of stabilized in a way where they did make the playoffs. They have looked good. They do have this anniversary approaching. And I think, you know, for me, it may be five years out or ten years out or who knows, but I, I don't think I've made my last trip to Humboldt, Saskatchewan which is something I never thought I'd say, you know, uh, when you're looking looking back to a year ago. um, You know, I had been to Saskatoon to do a story on Vince Young even the year before the crash when he was playing for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and they they train in Saskatoon for training camp. And I never in my life thought I'd go to that same airport three different times. I mean, it's pretty crazy. But, you know, I think that the story resonates because it's, there's an ubiquity to putting your kid on the bus. Like we've talked about, everyone can identify with these families that take kids in with the families that lost people. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to write about it every year. I'm not trying to milk, milk the tragedy for all it's worth, but I do think it's instructive in a way where people can learn from what families like the Boulets are doing, the work they're invested in, the way that the team and the town has recovered and is still trying to, I think there are some universal themes and lessons in there where I feel like, um, you know, I feel like that it will resonate for a long time. So I, I don't think I've made my last trip up there, which is pretty crazy to say. It seems like the perfect story, maybe at the five-year or ten-year for the where are they now SI issue or something, you know, looking back at yeah, Humboldt absolutely. after five maybe years we could or find, Maybe, yeah, maybe it's the kid that got out of the hospital last, or maybe it's, you know, Maybe it's the wife of the coach who died. I mean, there's just a hundred different ways you could go. Maybe we look into organ donation again in Canada. I just think that I think there's a lot, of, lot to pull on there. And sometimes these stories are so emotional that you just don't want to dive back into it like ever again. But right. in this instance, I actually think there are things that come out of it that people can take and pull and learn from that make it more worthwhile. You said earlier that the guy who runs SI is that Chris Stone had called you to ask you to go there or someone else. Uh, Steve Canella. Okay. So he's the, Stephen Canella is the executive editor. That's uh, Chris's old job. So okay. essentially, Chris oversees the, the entire empire. Okay, gotcha. Which would be, you know, all the different stuff we own, including SITV, SI Films, SI uh, Fan Sided, you know, all those different sort of subsidiaries. And then the executive editor runs the magazine. So that was Stephen Canella, who has Stone's old job. Now, did he, do you assume he called you because? you're based in Vancouver and you could get there a little easier, or do you think it was something about pairing you specifically as a writer with the story or why do you think they called you? Yeah, I'm not really sure. You know, when I wrote for the New York times, the eight years I was there, I did a lot of stories like this where you're sort of punching down and, you know, um, I covered everything from like, I don't know if you remember that Janesville, Ohio, where the the guy uh, had all those exotic animals, 
killed himself and after he cut open their cages. I covered that. Huh. Uh, you know, Junior Seau suicide I covered in San Diego. That's sort of a, I guess, a background with it. But I'm not sure exactly why he called me. I, I don't cover hockey in general. Uh, Saskatoon is not close to me. It's basically above Minnesota. So oh, like okay. Yeah, between uh, here is, and, yeah and okay. It's further central than I thought. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, um, it's kind of like right in the middle. It's not easy to get to, though. I think uh, anyone in the U.S. from the East Coast would probably fly through Toronto. I flew, I threw sometimes through Minnesota, sometimes through Vancouver. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know, you know. I'm not sure. It could have been luck of the draw. It's quite possible the hockey writer was unavailable. Um, you know, I'm glad they called, though, because it was definitely a big and impactful story of my life. And, uh, I think you get a little juice when you get sent into a situation like that. I mean, I, from the minute I got the call from Steve to the minute I, I had edited, I had an edited version of the story was roughly three days, you know, right. it was pretty crazy to go there, report it, drive all around. The, the crash site isn't anywhere close to the town. The town's not close to the airport. And to turn that around as quickly as we did, was, was it reminded me of my old New York times days before, I became a lazy magazine writer. <laughs> Were you surprised they gave it the cover? <laughs> uh, yes, very much so. Yeah. And that, that owed a little bit to confluence of factors, but they always do. So I never apologize for an ugly win, if if, if, uh, if that makes sense. Right. You know? Yep. Um, you know, I've had one like Ricky Williams was supposed to be a cover. We had him, I shot him even smoking a joint was going to be the cover. And, you know, that week Muhammad Ali passed. Huh. And so, you know, I've lost. I've lost way more covers than I've gotten, but that, you know, this one in particular, I think they had been targeting Zion Williamson for that, for that cover. And so if, uh, if he had been playing, probably never would have happened or they may have considered doing one just for Canada. And then, you know, the, the Harper news was kind of hanging over that week and I didn't know if they'd switch. And so, you know, I think uh, there are examples throughout SI's history where they've done like, you know, put, put a really cool story out on the cover instead of a star athlete, but we do that, I think, pretty rarely now, especially because we publish so infrequently. And so, yeah, I was pretty grateful that they did that, and I was psyched that they put the documentary on the cover as well, the, you know, nod to the fact that we've done it, uh, the director's name, because uh, we did tell the story two different ways, and she deserves uh, more credit than I do for, for the overall project. And so and it's uh, really... I thought that was cool, too, so... It's a beautiful picture. Yeah. I mean, with the light on the jersey and the rink darkened behind it. Um, yeah, I, I liked it a lot, and it was—I thought it was powerful and cool, and the kind of thing we should do more of, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's interesting too that I'm going to be talking to S.L. Price either sometime today or, or next week to talk about his Maple Leaf piece. Two Canadian hockey stories in one issue of SI. I bet that's probably rare. Edited, edited by the same editor as well, Sarah Kwok, who's a fantastic writer. I've had her on. Transitioned editing. Yeah, I've had her yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. She Back did a she great job on both stories. And yeah, she did a great job on, on helping me, especially because it's not something I'm super familiar with. And so uh, she edited both stories in the same week, which is uh, probably even harder than it sounds. So yeah, I was uh, overall, I was really happy with how everything went. I thought the shot on the cover was great. And uh, I like I love the fact that we put so much resource into it. It's the kind of thing where, you know, I'm happy that they stood up and said we did this. We invested a lot in it, and we think it's you know important to show you show it to you. Uh, Greg Bishop writes for Sports Illustrated. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Greg Bishop SI. There, um, he did jinx Drew Brees, but he wrote a beautiful piece on Humboldt. So I'm choosing to forgive him. 
uh, <laughs> and uh, humbly appreciating his time today. Thank you, Greg. Anything else you want to plug before no I let problem. you go? Did, I'm sorry. Uh, did you have Passon on yet? I'm curious. I know you said you, he was on your list. Uh, yeah, no. He's in Florida this week, so we're going to catch up sometime this week while he's down in Florida. But I will be speaking with him this week. I know you guys are buddies, right? You want to? You want me to give him a message? He's one of my best friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ask him. Ask him what his college nickname is when you have him on the podcast. Please right, do good. that for me. And, I love this. Uh, yeah, uh, that that's fantastic. That we're both on in the same week. Groomsmen in my wedding, and vice versa. And so you know, um, no, I thank you for having me. We got a bunch of draft stuff coming up, um, but I would just encourage people that maybe are listening in Canada to watch the documentary. It's free up there. Okay. And if not, SITV is super cheap, five dollars a month. I, I always try to push that too. But we have a free link to Canadian people, uh, followers because there's no way for them to get it the way you can get it in the States. So um, if you got any ho- of your hockey fans up there, uh, I would just highly recommend the doc. I think she did a really awesome job with it. All right, next time it's got to be something a little bit more, well, less tragic, I guess is the way to put it. But uh, thanks again for coming back, Greg. No, I appreciate you having me. And I won't ride Breeze this year, so maybe, maybe <laughs> they'll, they'll finally get one before he's done. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. It was bullshit, yeah, right? That call, you agree, right? That was bullshit. We got screwed, right? Hundred percent. Okay, yeah. thank you. And to have those back to back, I mean, I just can't Ugh. imagine what that's like. Ugh. It's, it's death. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Thank Greg Bishop and, of course, Jeff Passan for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters. And you can email me if you'd like a copy of The History of the Future by Blake J. Harris at the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, working on... SL Price on the program, working on Brian Curtis on the program, uh, working on a couple guys from Vegas who have a YouTube channel called Lost in Vegas, where they like react to different rock songs. It's a really cool page. I'd love to have them on. I'm working on that. Uh, hopefully we get a couple of those names or all of them in the future. Don't forget to check out Greetings from Allentown. My friend Peter Winson, it's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. He's got a best of episode last week, but a brand new one this week. Love the work that Peter does. Make sure you follow that. Greetings from Allentown. One of the great podcasts about wrestling. Don't forget my man Adrian Dater. He's at A Dater on Twitter. You can find him BSN Denver as well. All his great work there. The Place to Be Nation podcast. I believe they just had episode 515. I was on 513. Uh, the Place to Be Nation podcast. For more information, it's uh, it's P, the number 2 BN podcast on Twitter. Uh, one of my favorites. Check it out. Great, great podcast there. Uh, tennis. Let's do some tennis plugs. Uh, my boy and friend Matt. Let me find the plug first before I screw it up. Matthew Zemek. 
Uh, he was on uh, the podcast. I, or I was thinking about having him on the podcast uh, to talk about the NCAA tournament, but he seemed busy. And I figured by the time it gets out, the tournament starts. And it's not like the old days when we had Luke Wynn on every single year, like clockwork this week. Uh, of course, he's no longer in media. Uh, don't forget uh, TennisAccent.com. Uh, it's managed and edited by Matt Zemick. Tennis with an accent does not report on every occasion. When Roger Federer coughs or sneezes, when Federer makes news, though, Tennis with an Accent will write about him. But the mission of TWAA is to offer original insights on players across the spectrum of the sport. Uh, the Tennis with an Accent podcast represents a haven for tennis fans who want bait free content in podcasting and written coverage throughout each tennis season. Uh, make Tennis with an Accent and TennisAccent.com your go to stops for thoughtful and unique tennis coverage. Uh, you can follow. Uh, Matt's partner, uh, Sak Eib, on Twitter. He is at S-A-Q-I-B-A. You can follow Tennis with an Accent on Twitter at Accent, A-C-C-E-N-T underscore Tennis. Or you can follow Matt at M-Z-E-M-E-K on Twitter. Uh, one last thing real quick on plugs. Don't forget about my boy Eric Hawk, who was on the podcast last week. And, of course, Eric is with the Buffalo Wings and... They are not called the Buffalo Wings anymore, uh, but I have that on my mind so much because we talked about the history of them, and we kept saying the Wings this and the Wings that, and we were just kind of like stuck on the history of the Wings, and now this whole time I've been calling them that. But of course, as Eric talked about in that podcast, they're rebranded now. Uh, they're no longer called the Wings. Uh, they're now called Western New York Roller Hockey, I believe. I can't find Eric's email for whatever reason, so no plug for him this week. If you want to plug... Uh, for the Western New York Roller Hockey, check out last week's episode. Uh, there's plenty of information there. All right, one last thing uh, from me for tonight, and I want to talk about Richard Deitch's podcast. Uh, Richard was on the season premiere, I believe, of episode, or season nine of the Sportscast. Just let me check. No, episode two. He was on episode two of season nine. He was also on episode three of this podcast ever. And um, I don't remember. I think I just found him on Twitter. I saw he had a Buffalo connection. I was still really new to booking. I thought that'd be a good way to reach out to say, hey, you know, I'm a Buffalo guy. Uh, Let's do this thing here. And uh, I reached out and he was on the third episode. It was passing on the first, uh, Greg Wyshynski on the second, and then Deitch on the third. Then in 2013, of course, Deitch and I kind of go viral, if that's what you want to call it, uh, with the pictures of the greatest moment. And uh, in 2014, Deitch named the Sportscasters one of the best sports podcasts of the year in Sports Illustrated, which I thought was a really big deal. Uh, We were the only independent podcast that was mentioned, which was really cool. And then... Richard's always been a friend of this show. He always comes on. He busts balls. We do great interviews. People love them. And in 2018, at the tail end, uh, The Athletic, we were named in his column of the best sports podcast of the year. Many podcasts were named this time, uh, but luckily we were one of them. And when I had Richard on a couple months ago, I said I wanted to pitch him an idea. Now, often on Richard's podcast, which is called the Sports Media Podcast Now, Uh, When he was at SI, it was the SI Sports Media Podcast. And often on his show, what he does is he'll have 
uh, he'll have these shows where he does roundtables. And they're about sports media issues. And he'll have, like, John Arland on. Maybe he'll have Jimmy Traina. Whoever. He'll get a bunch of people on. And they'll talk about sports media issues. And I was listening to it. I, I was like, you know what would be a really cool episode of this show is if he did what he's doing now. And in the roundtable, the topic was podcasts. And I knew that Richard is really interested in podcasts. He's fascinated by the medium. So at the end of our call, I said, let me pitch you this idea. And he said, sure. And I told him my idea about how it'd be a sports roundtable. And I said, what he should do is he should tier it. He should have a top podcaster, someone who's killing it in the industry. Uh, then maybe someone in the middle who's associated with a network. And I said, and then someone on the bottom like me who's independent, not making any money, doing it for a labor of love. And, you know, talk about the issues of podcasting and why we do it and what works and what doesn't work. And he really liked the idea. And I said, I'm going to stay on him about it. So about a month went by and I, I noticed it had been a month. So I emailed him. And I said, hey, I just wanted to remind you about this idea. And I kind of put the, pi- the pitch in print. And a couple of weeks later, he wrote back and he said, your idea is happening. I'd want you to be on it. And when can you when can you make yourself available? And of course, I wrote back and said, I'm available whenever, whenever you want me to be. Uh, so he decided on March 19th at 9.20 a.m., I activated a Skype telephone number. I thought it would be good quality, better than my cell phone because I don't have a landline phone at the house. And 9.20 came. He called, His producer called me, and we hooked up. And the only thing that didn't happen, which was kind of the idea, is I thought we would all be on at once and that it would be similar to when he does the Roundtable podcast for regular media, and we could kind of debate. But I guess the way he did it is he – interviewed everyone individually and it dropped it, it comes out tonight you know probably a couple hours after i'm recording this which is why i wanted to make sure that this podcast got up so that if anyone kind of catches on to mine from listening to that one they would hear this episode with passin i thought was a really great kind of lead guest to be on my last podcast up there uh but he he spoke to me for about 25 minutes I was nervous. I tried to have fun with it as best as I can. Richard said it turned out good. I emailed him and said, why do I think I blew it? And he wrote back, because you think so much, you were great. Uh, So he seemed to like it. One thing I love about being on his show is that he tweets about his stuff all the time. And I figured that he's going to tweet the hell out of this, and my name's going to be tagged, and maybe I can pick up some followers and get some new listeners, and I said it in the beginning of this season, like, it's time for me to be more aggressive, to cash in on some favors. Like, I told Jeff Perlman that I'm going to donate 25 bucks to be on a quaz. I'm doing that. I want to be on a quaz. I want that interview with me on a website that I can share with people that can be a, a piece of marketing. And I think that, I hope I represented myself in this podcast really good on Richard's. And I hope you guys check it out. Again, it's the Richard Deitch podcast. It's called the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, so you can find it easily on your on your podcast catchers. The Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch is the official name. And I was on it. And I'm proud that I was on it. I want to thank Richard for being a friend and for letting me tell my story. And I will see you guys next week. We're chasing